Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Um, for those of you who have not met this young man uh, here to my right, uh, this is uh, Dr. Uh, Kurt Bradford, and um, he was one of those guys that got his doctorate a little, a little later in life, not long ago, in fact, and uh, I've, I've had fun with that a little bit, but uh, I also uh, use those words in, to honor him um, because he has spent his life studying God's Word, and uh, he's been a lifelong learner. That was one of the things he taught me. Kurt is my mentor, um, my friend, uh, still in so many ways my pastor, and um, so one of the things that I just want to remind you of, everything that I screw up. They know better. (laughs) (laughs) But I love this man, and so I just pray that you will give him uh, your attention this morning. Bless you, brother. Thank you, John. Yeah. (laughs) It is good to be here. I appreciate Joe uh, Joe allowing me to to come back here, you know, having having been gone now a long time, several years, I think it is, since I was here on staff, you know, before they gave me my notice. And uh, it's, it's been good. I want to uh, talk to you today uh, from the book of Daniel. Uh, this is prompted by my friend Dean Enfinger, who preached last week. And I want to uh, continue to look at the book of Daniel from another perspective. So if you've got your Bibles, would you turn there to Daniel chapter 1. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the, in the chair in front of you. Uh, we're using that translation, the English Standard Version. Uh, it's, it's really um, it's, it's the, the version we studied the most out of today, although we, you know, those of us that are in ministry, we study a lot of different translations, and uh, we you know, study Greek and Hebrew and all that kind of stuff, but uh, this is, uh, this is uh, directly from the Word of God that, that I believe is a word for the church today, uh, and so that's why I, I decided to to talk about this. Let's read the scripture first and then I'll try to dive into it. <clears throat> Excuse me. In Daniel 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Ju- Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. 
This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray now that um, just like the rain falls on the roof, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill those who are gathered in this room or watching online or maybe even watching later, that it would be you who speak to the folks who are gathered. I pray that your Spirit would point out anything that needs to be considered, looked at, reflected on, changed, repented of, confessed, or strengthened. And I pray that you would pour your Spirit out so that your people may be strengthened. Now, if you would join me in praying the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This... Uh, the passage of scripture I want to, that I want us to take a look at is historical in that the people of Israel um, were taken captive to Babylon. This is a, it was during a time where the, the Babylonian empire was stronger than any other empire. You know, like today we think about the British empire years ago. And there are those who talk about the American empire or the Russian empire, but um, Nebuchadnezzar was the king in Babylon, and the Babylonian Empire was pretty strong, and whatever they did all over the land, what they would do is they would go to a country, they would besiege it, which means they surrounded the major city, and when necessary, they would keep every, anybody from leaving, and they would not let anybody go in, and eventually they would go in and conquer the city. Most of the time, the city would just surrender. Uh, because they knew they would all be killed if they didn't. And so that's what happened here. Nebuchadnezzar came and surrounded Jerusalem, which was the capital city of Israel, where the temple was. And when it says that uh, Jehoiakim, who was the king, uh, it says that God gave him over to the Babylonians. What that means literally is that God took his hand of protection off of Jerusalem. And the reason is, if you go back and read uh, earlier accounts before this, you'll discover that what Israel did was they began to be more and more tolerant of sin. They began, began to move farther and farther away from God's laws, from God's commandments, from God's teachings. And so after a while, it became that Israel was just a, a, a country who had a God, his name was Jehovah, and there was this temple in Jerusalem that was beautiful, and whatever was your religious duty was you would go there every now and then, show up at the temple and maybe make an offering, but your behavior was not affected at all. Their, their behavior was just like the rest of the people. There was, there was sexual sin, sexual immorality, there was murder, there was thievery, there was decadence, there was lying, cheat. I mean, all of those things were there. And so God took his hand off of them and allowed Nebuchadnezzar, 
the Babylonians to conquer them. And Nebuchadnezzar's model, whenever he conquered a nation or a people, was to take the majority of the people who were young, healthy, uh, and had skills that would bless the Babylonian empire, and he would take them all to Babylon. He would just, it, it was as if, if they were talking about this today, what he would do is he would come to America or come to Charleston, and what he would look is at, see who are all the young, good-looking, smart, skillful people, and take them wherever he was. And of course, what that means is the people that got left, they were my peers. All of the folks that were my age, he left us there. You know, they would go around and it'd be three young guys, oh, him, him, and him. And they would look and see somebody that looked like me and they'd say, nope, skip over him, go over there. So they would take all of these folks. And when they brought them to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar gave his eunuch, one of the men that was a, an official, he gave him a charge. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take these men, and notice the majority of them are young. And we're talking about young everywhere from probably 12 years old to somewhere in their 40s in there, those productive years, skillful years. He says, I want you to take all of these folks, and what I do is I want you to train them. Now, he, what he says in there in the verse, he says, I want you to teach them. That's the same word that could be translated train them. He says, I want you to train them how to live in Babylon. How to be, we know you're Jewish. We know you're from Israel. But now we are moving you to Babylon. And we're going to take the next three years to teach you how to be a Babylonian. They were pretty much saying, this is what you're going to be, a Babylonian. And the king gave this charge to one of his officials. And he gave him three years said, you've got three years to transform these people from Jewish people to Babylonian people. That was probably a little scary if, if you were that guy. They just gave over to your care, maybe 300 or 400 people or maybe even two or 3,000 people. And he said, look, you got three years to make these people Babylonians. I want them to think like Babylonians, act like Babylonians, live like Babylonians, worship our gods, and all of those kind of things. And that was the charge that he gave this man, Ashpenaz. And there are four characters in there that we, uh, Pastor uh, Dean is the one that prompted me to bring this message. Last week he talked about those four men, Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego. But what you notice in here is that he, these people are kind of demonstrating to us what the strategy was for the king of Babylon to transform these Jewish people to be Babylonians. How did they do that? What was the plan? Now, the reason I, last week, I, uh, when I, heard, I was here, I got to hear Dean teach on this passage in Daniel, a little, bit, a little bit past this passage, but it reminded me that I had done a sermon years ago, matter of fact, 23 years ago, when this church was known as, Bab uh, not Babylon, Babylon Baptist, it wasn't, a, no, when this church was known as Midland Park Baptist Church. 
23 years ago, I preached a message on this particular text. And the reason was, was because the world, particularly the American culture, was beginning to be less and less Christian. It was uh, pretty much like, I mean, there, it wasn't that there weren't people still going to church. There were. But the way the, the, the values of the culture, the, uh, all of the, the media of the culture, everything seemed to be counter-Christian. In some places, it was an overt attack, but in other places, it was very subtle. And, I know, and what I thought about, I said, well, you know, now, 23 years later, after I preached that message, in my opinion, my name's Kurt, Kurt's opinion, I think, in my opinion, we are less of a Christian country than we were 23 years ago. I think there are many things. Now, obviously, that's, that's not to say there aren't any churches. There are churches. There's a lot of a lot of churches. And that what is my ministry now that Joe and the other elders here at the church assigned me when I retired here was to work with, with other pastors and churches to try to strengthen what remains, which means strengthen who remains. And so as I, in the last few years, I've, I've just noticed that things have changed to me more rapidly in the culture, but particularly in the church. And I suspected this, but I, I had no evidence. It was just a gut feeling, you know? And so uh, a friend of mine recommended a book. The name of the book is The Great De-Churching. The Great De-Churching. And it's based on some research and data that was done by some Christian scholars. That they have actually have data that proves this, that in the last 25 years, 40 million people who were pretty regular in church attendance and participation have dropped out. Now, it would be foolish to think that 40 million people who were at one time active in church and the life of a disciple, that those 40 million could drop out and it not have an effect on the larger culture. Because it does. So that's when, looking at this text here, I'm thinking, well, what was the strategy? As far as we know, Daniel and, and, and these other three fellows were deeply devoted followers of God. They were really sold out followers of God. How did Babylon, how did Nebuchadnezzar, how did they try to change them? What was their strategy? I asked that question, but then I asked this question, is that strategy still operative, not necessarily from Nebuchadnezzar, he's dead and gone, but is it a strategy of the world, the flesh, and the devil to take people who are disciples of Jesus 
and to marginalize us, minimize us. I use the word in here because it made the alliteration to disable us. What would the world of flesh and the devil do to render us where we don't even attend the meetings anymore? Where the teachings of Jesus are considered optional? Where whenever the teachings of Jesus are promoted, they are criticized? ridiculed, mocked. Where many of us who who walk with Jesus for a long time, we find ourselves having to make ourselves get up on Sunday to go to church. So in looking at this, I see a strategy in this text that I believe is still operative today. And so I bring you what I think is a Hopefully it's encouraging, but it will be a challenge. It will be something that I think you who are here today, you who are disciples of Jesus Christ, you must know that the world, the flesh, and the devil has not given up trying to change you. And it will continue to do that until you meet Jesus. So you need to be aware, what is the strategy I found three specific parts in this, and I relate it to this text. I call it three different strategies, disabling strategies. Disabling strategy number one is this. Cut them off from what makes them strong. Did you notice what they did was they took them out of Jerusalem and they took them to Babylon. Now, if you know anything about Jerusalem and and Israel, you know that in Jerusalem, the most visible thing there during this period was the temple that Solomon built, this fantastic temple up there. And nine out of ten of the citizens in that city were all Jewish. They ate kosher food. They worshiped God. They went to temple regularly. They read their Bibles. They, they, were, they were devoted to God. They followed the Ten Commandments. In, in other words, the, their whole culture, not, they weren't perfect, but their whole culture was set on following God. So what they did was they said, well, we can't leave them there in Jerusalem. Let's bring them over here to Babylon. There's no temple in Babylon except the temple to the various gods or idols that they have. So they said, let's separate them from what makes them strong. I thought about this uh, recently. My, my grandson, Jimmy, uh, is now a, a freshman at, at the University of South Carolina. We took him up there uh, just recently. And he's in a dorm living up there and everything. And, and when we helped him go up there, and he's, he's 18 years old, you know, I'm thinking, wow, you know what? It, it dragged up a memory of, my, of mine, a personal memory of whenever I was drafted Uh, Back during the Vietnam War, I was drafted. Uh, I had successfully flunked out of two fine colleges. And back then, they had this thing called the draft. So I got drafted, and and I'm on this bus, and they take you to Fort Jackson. And everybody, everybody that has a striping up is yelling at you. I mean, about everything. Hurry up. Slow down. Get up. Sit down. Go to sleep. Wake up. Yelling. You know, and I'm, I'm going, where in the world am I? 
And all I could remember was my sweet mama back there at home. She, would, she might want to tuck me in. I don't want the drill sergeant to tuck me in. It was, it was awful. But what they did was everything that was familiar to me, my hometown, my friends, my church, my house, my bedroom, my own bed, all of that that was familiar, they picked me up and planted me on Tank Hill at Fort Jackson. Do you think that would weaken you just a bit? It does. It really does. I mean, and that's exactly what they did with these people that they brought. They separated from everything that made them strong. Everything that made them strong. That was their first trip. The second strategy that they did was they taught them a new way to live. They taught them a new way to live. Look at verse 4. Teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans, by the way, that's another name for the Babylonians. Teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. I don't know how much you know about the Jewish culture, but there are cert certain foods are considered what they call kosher which means these are acceptable to eat according to our Jewish religion. Certain things are not kosher. Things like pork is not, is not kosher. Well, what he did was he separated them from what made them strong, the Jewish culture. Then he said, here, have a piece of fat back. Have a pork chop. Whatever. He gave them the foods that the Babylonians ate, not what the Jewish people ate but what the Babylonians ate. And he pretty much told them, you can eat. I remember my grandmother, uh, when we moved down to South Carolina after my parents divorced, we moved in with my grandmother and my grandfather. And whenever Granny would fix dinner, there, there, me, my mother and four kids move in with Granny and Pa. She'd fix supper, and we'd come to the table, and we'd look at it, and we'd say, what in the world is this that you're because it was southern cooking, you know, it was collards and cornbread and stuff like that. And we're looking at all that, what in the world? Because we were moving from Indiana. You know, we were used to hot dogs and hamburgers, you know, that sort of thing. And, and we, did, we didn't want to eat. Now, my grandfather said, well, son, this is what we got to eat. You can either eat this or get up from the table. Same thing. What that meant was you either eat this or you don't eat. So this is the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar told these Jewish guys. Eat this or starve to death. And so most of them did eat that. And he taught them a new way to live. I don't know whether you noticed, but he said, teach them the literature and the language. The literature and the language. We would say today, the media. Don't just show them them stories or Old Testament stories about Joseph and Jacob and Isaiah and Elijah. Show them these stories about the gods called Baal. And, and show, them, you know, show them everything but their stuff. That's what they did. They were teaching them a new way to live. And however they believed they could live, the Babylonians would try to replace it with the Babylonian way. For example, if the, if the Jewish people were saying, I believe that when you get married, you should marry one person and be faithful to that person the rest of your life. And the Babylonian culture would say, well, hey, you don't have to do that. You know, you can hang out with anybody you want to. 
You don't have to be faithful to one person. You can have three or four persons or no persons. And all this stuff about saving sex for when you get married, ah, don't worry about that. Go for it. Teaching them a new way to live. The third strategy that they used was, which one is that grieves me the most, make them forget who they are. See, these people were proud Jewish people. God has called us his people. He says, make them forget about that. And the way that they did it, look at how they did it in verse 7. The chief of the eunuchs gave them names. And I inserted the word new names. Gave them names. He, Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. He says, forget about what your mama and your daddy named you when you were born. Here's your new name. And interestingly enough, all of those new names have nothing to do with Jehovah God. And quite a bit to do with idols that are worshipped in Babylon. So that after a while, they would answer to their new name, not their old name. Wow. I mean, it's pretty obvious. It's a strategy. And, and listen, this is not just what they did to the Jewish people. They did this to any nation that they conquered. If they had, had conquered people from Europe, they would have done the same thing. Give them new names, teach them how to live. They would do all of that. The same thing, no matter where the people were that they conquered, they would do these three things. They would teach them a new way to live. They would cut them off from what made them strong, and they would make them forget who they were. So that after a short period of time, they would identify themselves as saying, I'm a Babylonian citizen. I'm a citizen of Babylon. Can't you tell the way that I live? And I went to worship this idol over in here. Wow. Some years ago, I don't know exactly, I think it's eight or nine years ago, I was reading uh, my devotional life, my morning devotional life, is Old Testament, uh, one of the Psalms, and the New Testament. And I just read straight through. I read chapter one, then chapter two, then, I mean, that's what I do. Well, I had gotten to the end of the New Testament and was in Revelation. And uh, I remember that it was in Revelation chapter three where... Uh, Christ speaks through John to the church at a place called Sardis. And he says to that church, he says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. I'm, I'm going to tell you that when, when I read that, I was doing the ministry that you, River Bluff, sent me to do, which is to strengthen pastors and churches. That's my ministry now in my retirement, to strengthen pastors and churches. And when I read that, I said, oh, wow. But then when I reflected on the fact that so many of our churches now have fewer people in attendance on Sunday, so many of our churches have lessened to so many, so few people that they can't even afford to have a full-time pastor. The number of people who attend church regularly now is significantly less 
than 25 years ago. And I'm not saying that, you know, everything is dependent on church attendance. But I, but I do understand that how we function as a community of faith impacts how we live in the culture. Or how we live in, if you will accept it, how we live in Babylon. So I wanted to share with you today three things related to their strategy, the strategy of the world, the flesh, and the devil. For you who are disciples of Jesus Christ, that my goal today is to hopefully help you consider some things to do so that you will be strong in the Lord. How to stay strong in the Lord. Now let me, let me caution you. There are many folks who are faithful followers of Jesus, disciples, and they figure they don't need to worry about these things. Let me just say to you that that is exactly when you do need to worry. Be careful. You who think you stand, be careful lest you fall. God says, pay attention to these, give attention to these, and consider implementing whatever is lacking in your life. How to stay strong. The first thing that I believe disciples do, well, let me back up a minute. If you are a born-again Christian, if you have repented of your sins, placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are a born-again Christian, which means you are a disciple. You are a disciple. Now, you may be the worst disciple he's got, but you are a disciple. So many of us say, well, I, well, I believe I believe in Jesus. You know, there's a verse in Scripture that says the devil believes. We're talking about disciples of Jesus. So I'm saying to you, if, if you're saying, well, I never signed on to be a disciple. Listen, as soon as you went, stuck your head under that water right there, you prayed to receive, you became a disciple of Jesus. Pra Let me show some practices of Jesus, disciples, that will help you to stay strong. First one is this. Disciples prioritize and protect kingdom connections. Now, I need to flesh out what I mean by kingdom connection. A kingdom connection is something that is of a spiritual nature that a disciple does that keeps them strong and growing as a disciple of Jesus. You know, certain things like one of the things that, that makes a disciple strong is biblical community. You know, and, and you may not know it, but gathering together on Sundays like this, this makes you stronger. But, but this, this is not enough. I, I want to recommend to you that you need to do something like be in some relationship with three or four other people that you could call it a small group, call it a class, call it your friends, whatever. But these people help you stay strong in Christ. These people want to be more like Jesus, and they want you to be more like Jesus. But those things keep you strong. But you have to prioritize those things. You have to protect them. That's one of the things that uh, I sound like an old man. Of course, at 75, I guess I am. But one of the things that uh, as an old man that bugs me the most is it seems like more and more activities for 
our youth and children are planned on Sundays. I can remember a time when stores didn't even open on Sunday. But now it's either a soccer game or a basketball game or let's all go to the lake. And listen, I'm not saying those things are sin. They're not sin. They're not. But I think you've got to prioritize worship, discipleship, meeting with people that are walking with Jesus. And you've got to have it such a high priority that there's no way you would skip it. Joyce and I, my wife's name is Joyce for those of you who don't know, but when, whenever we're traveling, if, if we're traveling and uh, Sunday happens, the, the closest Baptist church, we go to others as well, but we primarily look for Baptist, the closest Baptist church at 11 o'clock on Sunday, we'll pull our car into the driveway of that place in that parking lot and walk in and worship with whoever that is. Do we know those people? No. But those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to be forever together. What has happened is it it is a a habit of ours, a practice of ours, that we need to worship. And we need to worship with other people. And we need to worship, we need to spend time with some people in discipleship. We need to have somebody that's close enough to us and loves us enough that when we say, I'm thinking about doing this, they would say, are you crazy? You need that person in your life. Do not minimize the priority and value of Christian connections. That's why, uh, David, the things you guys are going to do with the men here. I mean, that's one of the things... Men need to be together with other men. We don't mind going to, you know, Yale for Carolina or Clemson or College of Charleston, you know, but we need to be with other men who love Jesus and want us to love Jesus. Women need to be with other women who do that. And together, we need to be all together worshiping, loving Him. Do not minimize how important biblical community is in your life Romans chapter 12 verse 10 Paul doesn't say go to church here's what he says be devoted you're devoted to Jesus but to who else one another devoted means fully committed to one another in brotherly love give preference to one another in honor And the writer of Hebrews says something about that. And the writer of John says something about that. We really do need each other to stay strong. The second thing I would recommend to you as a practical step for a disciple is that disciples trust who God says they are. We trust who God says we are. You know, the culture will call you a bunch of different things. You know, like uh, the culture will say, like the American culture will say, well, you're an American first. Or, or you're an Asian first. Or you're an African American first. Or you're a white guy first. Or you're an old guy first. Or you're a husband first. Or you're a father first. Or you're a son first. Let me just say, when you commit yourself to Jesus Christ, your first and primary identity is I am a born again disciple of Jesus. I am a follower of Jesus. And you see, if you establish that, it makes everything else kind of fall into line. When you know, now we want to be popular. You know we want friends. We know we want people to like us. You know we want to do all of those kind of things, but never, ever forget 
that God says, you're my child. And just so you'll know, everybody that's ever born is not a child of God. They're a creation of God, but they're not a child of God. Look at this verse I, I put in your notes here from John chapter 1. But to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He says, look, you are born again, and God did it. The gospel is what God has done to reclaim people. And when you confess Jesus as Lord, you repent and place your faith in him, you are born again, and he did all the heavy lifting. He's the one who went to the cross so that you could be saved. And he says, because of that, you are a child of God. And the, the, the fellow that wrote that, John, one of his disciples, years later he was exiled, kind of like the Babylonian thing. He was exiled to an island and lived by himself. But you know what he wrote there? Here's what he wrote in 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called, up. Oh, there it is again, children of God. And so we are. I am a child of God. Now, Dallas Willard, who Joe and I both love to read, he says, look, you are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. You are a child of God. Now, I've got more years behind me than I do in front of me. I'm 75. So one of these days, Jesus is going to say, okay, come on and take me back. Take me up to home. Or he may come before that and take all of us home. But when we get there, you will recognize just that you are a blessed and beloved, deeply loved, forgiven child of God. And God will not fold his arms in anger. He'll open his arms to you. Not because you live this wonderful life, but because Christ has saved you. You're born again. Every time I do communion... I think about what Jesus did. When we sang this morning, I think about what it cost Jesus to save me, to save you. You recognize that that's why, that's who I am. Now, these, these things here, that was a strategy, I think, that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians used to take strong Jewish believers to try to make them into Babylonians. I think the same strategy is used today to try to make you, as a disciple of Jesus, to become more a product of the culture than a disciple of Jesus. That's why we really need to pay attention to these things. You know what, uh, I think Dean pointed it out last week in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, that the king told them they were going to bow down to his gods. And they said, well, we won't do it. And he said, well, I'm going to throw you in, into the burning furnace, a fire. I'm going, to, I'm going to burn you guys up. And 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I believe Daniel too, probably said what the scripture says, you can do whatever it is you want to do to us, and God may deliver us, or he may not. But if not, we will be faithful. If God delivers us, we will be faithful. If God does not, we will be faithful. I told Dean uh, one of the things I remember from my history of World War II is that in uh, uh, Dunkirk, whenever the Nazis were attacking there, the general sent word back and said, we hope that we will be delivered. But if not, same thing. So I'm recommending these things here that make you strong as a disciple to be sure that they're in your life so that you will be strong in the Lord and in the power of his life and that you will not treat them as if they really don't matter and they're, they're just religious rituals or just, just what my mama wants me to do or what somebody wants me to do. These are the practices of Jesus as well as us who are disciples. And so I encourage you to be fully devoted disciples of Jesus who will never forget who you are, who will recognize the things that make you strong, like morning devotionals, like Sunday worship, like biblical community, like serving others. And choosing how you live, not as a free moral agent in Babylon, but as a disciple of Jesus, always remembering who you are. Well, let's pray. I'm going to pose uh, several questions, and uh, I don't know what the Holy Spirit does with the teaching that I bring, I wouldn't presume to tell him what he's supposed to do. But I do hope he's spoken to your heart. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions now that these are not, you're not answering me. Let the Lord show you. Ready? Pray. Am I a disciple of Jesus who is fully devoted or am I just really someone who believes or maybe just a member of a church, but nowhere near fully devoted. If that didn't come back like you hoped it would, then you can pray this. Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this day I do ask to be fully devoted to the Lord Jesus. To not only believe in him, but to trust him and to adjust my life so that I stay strong. Another question you might want to ask is, am I fully devoted to making Jesus' ways my ways? Do I really want to be somebody that forgives rather than gets even? Do I really want to be somebody that gives more than he gets? Do I really want to be somebody that's humble rather than plowed, proud? Do I really want to be somebody that 
thinks of others first rather than myself. If the answer was anything other than the Holy Spirit give you, then this is the time. The grace of God is always there. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord Jesus, I want to be fully devoted to you, not in just church attendance and worship, but in adjusting my life to the teachings that you gave us, Lord Jesus. I want to be like you, Jesus. And now the last question. Uh, would you define yourself first as a disciple of Jesus? And if not, would you today say, Lord, this is what I want to be from this day on. I want to be known in heaven and on earth and in my own mind as a fully devoted disciple of Jesus. And I ask you to regularly remind me of that. Heavenly Father, through your spirit, I ask that you show each one of us in this room and online the answers to these questions, but more than that, what to do about it. I pray that you would forgive us where we fail to be strong. I pray that you would forgive us where we have prioritized so many other things more than following you. I pray that you would forgive us where we've chosen to love our personal kingdoms here on earth more than your kingdom. I thank you and praise you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit cleanses us when we come before you confessing our sin. You cleanse us and cleanse our soul and you give us a new day, a new chance, a new opportunity, a new beginning. God, I pray that these, your people, will live this day as if it is the first day of the rest of their life. I pray these things in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.